Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. We are here for half an hour of science on your radio. My name is Claire and today I have an immunologist guest in the house, Catriona Nguyen-Robertson. She looks at the effect of exercise on the immune system. Interestingly, if you are an elite athlete um, and you exercise quite intensely your immune system might get better and then it drops do you guys have to worry about that you guys elite athletes over there yeah no 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 it's not not likely to happen no it doesn't no i don't i don't don't have to worry about that either final elite (laughs) i do i do often push myself beyond my limits can we just say okay well you're you're elite to yourself yeah that's right Yeah, Yeah. yeah and that's what's important yeah chris what do you have for us today I have a. I'm having a bit of a look at a recent controversy in Australian zoology and conservation science, um, the disco- rediscovery of the night parrot, and some of the recent findings that some of the rediscoveries may not be as genuine as we originally thought. So, wow, that's probably shaking the twitching world. They are twitching. They are twitching more than normal. Yes, exactly. Right. Stu? Well, I came across a story uh, this week. Um, Imagine if you found out you had a superpower. Would you be pretty happy about that? Oh, I'd be hugely chuffed. What if you found out that you had a superpower but you were 60-something years old already and Um, you'd had it your whole (laughs) life but you didn't know about it? That's that's what my story is basically about, is about someone who has abilities that most of us don't have and they didn't realise that not everybody had them until fairly recently and she's quite old. That is incredible. It um, is incredible. Well, stay tuned to hear all about what that superpower actually is. Yeah. Yeah. On with the show. My guest today is PhD candidate at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity and also a science writer and presenter who, amongst other things, studies the effect of exercise on the immune system. Catriona Nguyen-Robertson, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. Now, when I think of elite sports people, I think of very healthy people. But actually the research says when it comes to immune function, there's something a bit different. Yeah, so immediately after exercise, there's a very different effect to what happens sort of over a prolonged period. So immediately after exercise, you might have increased immune immune function. You have more immune cells circulating around your body in the blood. Um, and they're there to protect you. And they're also better at killing anything that shouldn't be there. But several hours after you've exercised, so during the recovery, you do get a decrease in the number of immune cells that are going around your body in the blood. And they're also less able to attack. They're weakened a little bit. So you're saying if I ride my bike to work like I do every morning, at the end of the ride... I get a bit of a spike in my immune function, but then it dips down to something lower than it was before I started my bike ride? 
Well, it depends on how intensely you're riding your <laughs> right. bike. Okay. Um, yeah. But it is very much to do with the intensity of your exercise as well as a little bit the duration. So right. um, if you're doing sort of a longer cycle, like 20 kilometers, it's probably going to be a bigger effect than if you're riding five. And so how does this effect translate to elite athletes who are, you know, doing a lot of exercise and a lot of practice um, and probably high intensity as well? Yeah, well, they're the only ones that are really affected a lot by this. It doesn't really matter if you sit on a couch all day versus you're sort of a moderately active person. When you're an elite athlete, you're particularly around, for example, an event like a marathon, you're going to be training intensively sort of the weeks leading up to it. And that constant strain on the immune system, particularly with changing the hormones that are going around in your blood and also producing chemicals and things that can dampen the immune system. So there have been links to with elite athletes immediately after an intense training period, they might be more likely to get upper respiratory tract infections. Right. So that's that's actually what the research shows. Yeah. For example, one thing that's affected are um, a special type of immune cells called T cells. Um, oh, yes. I've heard of these T cells. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there are types of T cells that contribute to allergy and things, but also types of T cells that are more geared to fight viruses and things. And these are the ones that are affected, whereas the allergy ones are not by um, this shift after exercise. So with dampened T cells that are supposed to be fighting viruses, you might be more likely to get a virus like the cold or the flu. So I can potentially blame the cold on my exercise, but I can't blame hay fever. Correct. Right. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, so you're currently working towards your PhD. Awesome. Can you give us a bit of an overview? Yeah, well, I'm sort of working on hipster T-cells. They're sort of the new kids on the block. Um, so <laughs> is that the official name? That's my name. Great. Um, the official name is unconventional T-cells, so it's basically the same thing. So most T-cells are known to recognise peptides, which are the derivatives of proteins. But I'm looking at T cells that recognize lipids, so fats and oils, and also um, particular T cells called mate cells. They're your mates. Um, <laughs> mate cells. Yeah, and they oh. recognize vitamin B metabolites. So it's kind of a shift from sort of this conventional idea of all T cells recognizing peptides. Um, so I'm looking at particularly mate cells response in exercise. And these ones um, are mostly found in the gut, the liver and the respiratory tract. So you can imagine that, especially with um, these elite athletes, knowing that there's sort of a link with upper respiratory tract infection after like, you know, a marathon or something, we want to know what's going on with these T cells that are supposedly protecting that area. And um, what sort of things have you found with these mate cells, with these um, hipster T cells? What have been some of your most exciting results? Well, firstly, we wanted to see whether or not these particular mate cells um, have the shift as well, that change after exercise. So you mean they go up the and, then they, the and then they dip down after the intense exercise? Yeah, yep. um, because... We know that it doesn't happen for all types of immune cells and even all T cells. Right. Um, and so I looked at mate cells specifically and did see this shift. Right. So these are cells that are specific to the respiratory system and they're undergoing that shift. Yeah. So it's not that they're limited to the respiratory system, but um, that is one of their sort of main protective roles. Hang out, role, hang, hang out places. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> now tell me, 
since you are an immunologist, there might be um, a lot of our listeners who have heard the word, but like, what does your average day look like? What do you actually do in the lab? I mean, I guess if you're looking at exercise, does that mean you get a lot of athletes to, to run a lot? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? Well, for me, instead of athletes, I'm more looking at just average individuals um, and also sort of gearing towards looking at cancer patients as well, going um, undergoing different types of treatments. But basically, I'm pretty mean. I get people to cycle on a bike and then I take their blood. Um, but from that blood, I can then isolate and pick out immune cells and we have ways to sort of sort them out to pick out the ones that we're interested in from the ones that we're not. And then I look at what kind of markers they have that can tell me how active they are or um, whether they've been around for a long time or not. So you can find out, you can take the blood, what, before they do exercise and then after they do exercise and then compare what, like, um, quantitatively exactly how good an immune cell it is? Um, So I can quantitate how frequent they are and in also look at in terms of all immune cells are the proportions changing um so i usually take before they ride the bike after two hours after and 24 hours after so that's the whole entire time that we say is recovery but i can also actually put them into a dish with cancer cells and see whether or not these immune cells can kill the cancer cells because you would expect that they would um, but sometimes with a weakened immune system, they might not. So we can compare the levels of how active they are that way. Now, Catriona, I understand you're off to Perth to compete in the Australian finals of Fame Lab. Congratulations. I think it's very exciting. <laughs> yes, it is exciting. So tell us what, what is Fame Lab and what do you have to do? So Fame Lab is basically a storytelling platform. You get three minutes to present your work without any slides and they very much encourage props, humour, costumes, that kind of thing. Great. Um, Things that don't translate over radio but I totally subscribe to. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. So basically for that I'm just trying to engage people in my story. Well, fingers crossed. Um, Catriona, thanks so much for coming into Lost in Science today and making all of us uh, subpar athletes out there feel much better about ourselves and our immune systems. Yeah, you're just looking out for your immune system, right? Totally. I <laughs> love it. That's the only reason you're not exercising. That is the only reason I'm not an elite sports star. Best of luck for finishing up the research and more importantly, best of luck for the Fame Lab finals in Perth. Thanks, Claire. Right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, have you guys been keeping up with the saga or with one of Australia's greatest conservation sagas, that of the night parrot? I have been keeping up. Oh, have I? I don't know. I don't know. Have you? What, has, what do you know? No, well, recently there has been a, well, in the last couple of years, they found the night parrot again, which had been long extinct. Yeah. But then I saw a headline that maybe that was actually found out to be fraudulent. Well, 
It's possibly some of it, maybe. It's not quite as simple as that, but does so was it, raise was questions it, about. Was it someone just with a, a hollow in a tree with like a sock puppet of a night parrot <laughs> nibbling on some some seed or something? Not quite as extreme as that. Okay, I can give you a brief a brief um, history of, of recent history of the night parrot. As, yes. as Claire said, night parrot um, was extinct for many, many decades. It was like one of the greatest kind of. In the birding world, at least, one of the greatest kind of lost species. Uh, in 2013, a naturalist named John Young took some photos of night parrots in uh, somewhere in Western Queensland that proved, essentially proved it was still existing. Now, people saw these photos and they, you could not doubt that this was actual live night parrots. It didn't look like puppets. In now, it. Okay. these photos were controversial unto themselves because previously John Young had been found to have created photos that weren't yeah of other birds, of- but other scientists looked at these um, looked at these photos and were convinced that they were they were genuine. Yeah, so the the land where it was found was then bought up by Bush Heritage Australia. It's become now the the Pullen Pullen Reserve, and there was a lot of research being done. There's a lot of scientists have gone there and are researching the night parrot. It's pretty clear the night parrot was discovered or rediscovered in that area. So it's not extinct. No, it's not extinct. And there was other work going on around Australia to look for these things. There was, was also a, it was also found in Western Australia, right? There have been samples found in Western Australia, yes. Uh, and there was currently work undergoing in the the Kimberleys as well. So places across across the country. Now, um, John Young, who was a naturalist who discovered or rediscovered the night parrots in uh, in the Pullen Pullen Reserve, he then was employed by the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, which is another. Um, non-government wildlife conservation group to go looking for the the parrots elsewhere. And he found them, or allegedly found them, in the Diamantina National Park in um, in Queensland. He also found it at the Cala Marina Wildlife Sanctuary in South Australia, which is near Lake Eyre. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did he have a team of people that he was out on the road with trying to find these night parrots? I don't know if he did in these particular instances, but these are the sightings that are the ones that have been recently called into question. So he claimed that the Diamantine National Park, there was like the, the biggest population that there was in the whole country. Um, so it was quite a significant discovery. Uh, I think there he had taken um, photographs of nests that he had found. Um, in South Australia, he had found a, a feather in a finch's nest. Uh, which then he was sent to a museum for identification, and he also recorded calls of the night parrots in South Australia. Now, there was some doubt raised about things, these things, and so the Australian Wildlife Conservancy commissioned an independent review of his his evidence, um, and that has recently be re- been revealed that they um, essentially they've retracted those findings in those particular areas. They they published all these. They've results. retracted the results. They've retracted everything to do with the night parrots. Yeah, from their own work. So wow. it's now believed that the um, that the the nests that were found were um, they all basically all the nests of the photograph were different in some way and the eggs looked fake. Um, the the feather that was found in a finch's nest um, that was sent to the museum they believed that both of them were genuine night parrot feathers but they weren't the same feather. So they you know he said oh, I found a feather in a nest and that feather was sent to a museum but the feather that was received by the museum was not the same as the one that was in the nest. And the calls that were recorded in South Australia were then found to be actually just him actually playing the the calls on a speaker to try yeah. and attract the night parrots, but they were the recordings of the calls were identical to previous recordings that had been taken elsewhere, I think from Western Australia, those particular ones. So 
yeah, they've had to retract everything about their discoveries about the night parrots. And so this raises questions about how much you can trust, I suppose, some of the evidence there regarding the night parrots, particularly such a sensational kind of lost species, but also what it means for um, wildlife conservation. Mm. So one of the arguments is that, uh, for instance, the, the, how rare is this parrot? Okay, so if the parrot is only in um, a couple of isolated places, then conserving it is extremely important. But if you say, oh, there's a, there's a place here that's got the largest population, then the, perhaps the other places where there's a smaller population seem less important. Then if that sure. larger population is made up, <clears throat> yeah. then yeah. that is a problem. Yeah. So it raises questions of how rare the, the bird is in the first place. It also raises questions about, like, if you are going to be directing conservation efforts, you know, how do you direct that money in those those efforts? Sorry, does it does it bring into question the original photos that John had taken, though? That, um, that the night parrot even is alive still. Well, as I said, there are other people researching the night parrot, and in other parts of the country, and have since taken independent people have taken photos of night parrots right, and okay. have recorded them. There is, uh, yeah, a large population of researchers are now looking at the population of night parrots. So that does seem fairly definite. The questions around the um, the initial photos. Uh, so there is a, a researcher at the Australian National University, Penny Olson, who has written a book on the night parrot, and she believes that the photos. The problem with the photos was that they were kind of staged that they were genuine night parrots, but they had been captured and kind of manipulated for good photos. But, like, it is an interesting thing. I mean, when you think about people are so enthusiastic about the night parrots, and now this does raise into question to most people's minds how rare are they? You know, if we're donating money to preserve these things and it's all made up, then then what do we, then what do we think about that? Um, I can say to you, rest assured, that the night parrot... I think they're pretty certain it does exist. Other people have taken photos of it. They're pretty certain it does exist. It is not extinct. But it's just a question of how many, where they are. Yeah, is, exactly. Is it, a, is it a danger that they will go extinct, I guess, yeah. is the big question. Yeah. Um, so it's, it just says something about the caution that needs to be applied when directing the scarce conservation dollars, um, particularly when the government is cutting back its conservation funding. And a lot of work is being done by non-government agencies who have who seek funding from the, the public to do their work and how, I guess, we rely on the integrity of their work to be able to be sure that we're donating the money and sitting at the right place. Anyway, there is um, plenty of reporting on this. You can look up other stories in this. The ABC, I believe, has some good series on the hunt for the night parrot, so I recommend looking up those. But, uh, yeah, just be interested to, to hear what all you people out there think about the state of conservation research in light of the night parrot. You know, you guys know how I love a good comic book story 
come to life in real world science. You really do, don't you? I really do. Is this about Ant-Man? No, it's not about <laughs> Ant-Man. <laughs> is, it a, is it about Casper the Friendly Ghost? <laughs> no, not about Casper the Friendly Not about the Archies. Oh, um, none of those. This isn't about Jughead gone no, rogue. No, it's not about Dennis the Menace. Is the, is the cartoon, the comic strip, one million BC? Is that turned out to be based on actual facts? On actual cave persons? Yeah. No. Can size explain why Garfield doesn't <laughs> like Mondays? You know they probably can. But I have found another comic book story this week, as reported by the British Journal of Anesthesia back in February. Now, many superhero movies take the form of an origin story. So someone is granted or develops superpowers and spends time coming to terms with those superpowers before almost unanimously deciding to slip on a leotard and fight crime. Not exactly sure why, but... Oh, some of them decide to become supervillains. So, you know, there is, yeah. like, there are two career paths in Australia. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. If you, if you do get those superpowers, you might be bad or you might be good. I don't know. That, that, I don't know. Maybe they flip a coin. I'm not really sure. But the opening of this particular superpower story is a 66-year-old Scottish woman checking into hospital. She was in there to have surgery on her hand, which required extensive reconstructive procedures despite her feeling no pain in her hand. What? So, following her surgery, doctors were surprised at the speed of her recovery and her apparent lack of need for any pain-killing analgesics following her surgery. Basically, after literally rebuilding her hand, she took a couple of Panadol and just lay in bed waiting to get better until she was discharged. So the doctors at the hospital further questioned the woman about her medical history and discovered she had a long history of not feeling any pain her entire life. Does this mean she also has a long history of injuring herself? No, not oh. particularly. But um, she, they did find that she has extensive arthritis damage to her hips uh, but didn't actually feel much discomfort from that. And she reported having burned herself on occasion and only noticed that she was getting burnt when she could smell her hair and skin scorching. So... Oh, God, that's, if, that's awful. If an immunity to pain wasn't enough on its own, she also heals very quickly and with minimal scarring. Okay, well, we are, we're, we're getting into Wolverine territory yeah. now, aren't, aren't we? Yeah. So that would definitely suit a superhero, but she didn't realise it wasn't normal until she was in her 60s. Wow. She thought everyone was like this. And imagine that, you would just see people wow. in pain going, oh, come on, suck it up, get over it. <laughs> or, or, or maybe you would look at people and you'd be like, wow, you've got a... Really low tolerance <laughs> of pain. Oh, my God. Um, so not only does she feel no physical pain, she's also apparently immune to anxiety and stress. So she's basically also fearless. Um, she reported not being worried when she was in a car accident. So while the car accident was happening, she was calm and, you know, stayed stayed level-headed throughout the whole thing. But, yeah, so she doesn't feel anxiety uh, or stress in that way either. So the doctors at the hospital sent her to a team of doctors at University College in London who specialise in pain genetics, and they found what is very likely to be the genetic basis of her condition. So just like in the X-Men where they have genetic mutations, 
Um, this 66-year-old Scottish woman has a particular genetic mutation. Uh, she has uh, a gene called FAR, which is F-A-A-H, um, partly regulates production of an enzyme that breaks down fatty acid amides, and this gene has been shown to be linked to lower anxiety and higher pain tolerance in patients. So they've already sort of come across this uh, genetic mutation before. Uh, and they've actually tried to work on it to figure out ways of treating anxiety and 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 chronic right. pain. And how common is this? Really, mutation? not very common. So it's really, really, you know, it's a very small group of people who have it, and they all seem to present this um, this condition. But she also had mutations in other parts of her genome, uh, specifically in an associated pseudogene, which is related to the far gene. So of course they called it far out. No. Yes, the oh. far out pseudogene. Who this said is, geneticists not a don't have a sense of humour? Oh, look, I genes. Think we have are, some evidence here. Yeah, there's lots of evidence <laughs> of geneticists having terrible senses of humour. Um, but this had previously been considered junk DNA. So they used to think it didn't do anything. And you often hear people talking about, oh, it's junk DNA, it doesn't code for anything. Well, apparently they do have contributory effects to these other. Um, these other genetic mutations. So these two mutations combined, she's able to tolerate much higher pain levels than the average person, heals faster without scarring, and experiences less anxiety under stressful situations. So they're hoping that this uh, may lead to better understanding of pain and anxiety in the general population um, and potentially lead to new treatments for people both based on the far-out pseudogene and regulation of some of the enzymes that these genes are related to. So of course, uh, pain does have some benefits in that it warns people that their body is getting damaged. And obviously, that's not something that you want to happen. But for people suffering uh, chronic pain, um, it's it's probably, you know, it's one of the mysteries of medical science is how do we how do we deal with this chronic pain that some people suffer? And this might be uh, a way to do it. It'd be a major breakthrough for those people and also potentially for uh, anxiety sufferers as well who also get debilitated by their condition. So look, I just also wonder if if she did start fighting crime, what would what would she be called? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna propose that we call her Wolvergran because, you know, she has all of the but no? No. No. You got anything better? Well, it doesn't really work, Wolvergran, does it? No, it's it's a bit it's a bit yeah. Weak. I think, but I think it's interesting though. You look, you draw the the superhero analogy here. I mean, one of the things that superheroes always do, like um, they discover some new power, or they got some new ability, or they make some device, and they go off and they like they fight crime with it. They don't share it with the rest of the world. Whereas what's happening here is she has this ability, and now the aim is to share it with the rest rest of the world, rather than just her keeping secret. And well, yeah, maybe maybe her actual people. superpower is empathy. Yeah, possibly. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science this week. A big thank you to our guest in the studio today, Katriona Nguyen-Robertson. 
Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network and with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would very much like to hear from you. You can find us on email at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us at Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. That is our handle. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or maybe you want to just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris and Stu get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.